Bloody Elbow presents the Level Change Podcast, a combat sports variety show that gives you analysis, fight breakdowns, and insightful discussion of MMA's biggest headlines. Here are your hosts, Steffi Haynes, Mookie Alexander, and Victor Rodriguez. Welcome back, and thank you for listening to episode 183 of the Level Change Podcast. I'm Steffi Haynes, and I'm joined by Mookie Alexander and Victor Rodriguez. And today, we'll be discussing Dana White's strange defense of Chimaya versus Diaz, Misha Tate's admission that her drop to 125 was disastrous, Cub Swanson's decision to move to bantamweight, and we'll be taking a look at the best fights on the UFC 277 card. But first, let's see what's been happening with the guys. Well, I'm I'm getting cooked because of how hot it's been, and I'm recording this for the next however many minutes we run because uh, you know the fan would interfere with my audio. So I'm just uh, braving this one out, and then hopefully we can see the other side of this, avoid any more heat waves like this. But beyond that, I guess I'm doing all right, and I'm looking forward to UFC 277. I know it's not a great card compared to some of the other pay-per-views, but I think at the very least the main card is worthwhile. Well, while you are cooking yourself, um, things are not actually that bad over here, but they will be. I always have full faith that it's, uh, that, that that's going to be the case. Uh, I had a birthday. It was okay, I guess. You know, it's whatever. And um, yeah, it, it's it's a, a good week for fights, a good couple of weeks for fights. You know, we got PFL coming up next week. We got Ryzen this week. Uh, LFA is back in full swing. So there's a lot really to look at in the landscape. And uh, yeah, man, just uh, waiting for the weekend. How the hell did I miss your birthday? What the hell? When was your birthday? It was Tuesday. My God. You know what? Something will be in the mail for you, sir. But anyways... Anyways, I'm glad y'all are having a decent enough week, all heat wave aside. Um, I'm also stuck in a heat wave, but I'm having a pretty decent week. It's all right. I'm looking forward to definitely the main card and some select fights from the undercard, but uh, 277 looks good. But we have some other stuff to talk about. And as I mentioned earlier, Dana White scoffs at the idea that he could simply book Nate Diaz. You don't just book Nate Diaz. Now, after Tuesday's Contender Series, there was a post-fight presser, and MMA Junkie got some quotes from him. Here's what he had to say. I care about Nate a lot. I like Nate. And Nate came in here long before that fight was ever made, and we were talking about it being his last fight. And I said, listen, kid, You think about the wars that Nate Diaz has put on and the incredible fights and the big fights that he's done with us. Go do whatever you want to do, man. But getting a fight done with him isn't as easy as it seems. Everybody's like, well, why don't you make a fight? Well, he asked for Francis Ngannou. I could go on forever, but I won't. We got it done. That's the fight he wanted. Now, before I go on with more quotes from this I got to say, the Francis Ngannou thing, Dana White makes a big deal about that. But 
doesn't it stand to reason that maybe Nate went in there and said, look, I need a fight. I keep asking you. I'll fight anybody. I'll even fight Francis Ngannou. Because I feel like that's probably the way that the conversation went. But because he threw that name out there, Dana White has lit down upon it like he was in all seriousness asking for Francis Ngannou. And I would love if somebody would just put that question to Nate to find out if he really, really, truly asked for Francis Ngannou. Now I'm going to go on further because... Some other comments were made here, specifically about Conor McGregor, because Nate had mentioned that he would fight Conor, that he would fight Dustin Poirier. I do believe that Chimaev's name came up in the conversation, so I'm not going to say that he didn't want this fight. I do believe that he would take any fight to get out of the UFC. Anyways, Dana said, Conor's not ready yet. Conor's leg isn't healed yet. Nate could obviously sit around and wait for that, but he doesn't want it. I don't know what he's got planned or what he's thinking, but right here, right now, he's ready to fight. He wants to go, and we're going. That's one of those fights you can do anytime, but no, it never worked out that way. Listen, if you get two guys like Connor and Nate who want to fight each other bad enough, it ends up happening. Now, on several occasions, McGregor's best move has appeared to be a showdown with Diaz, who famously submitted him at UFC 196 and took him the, to the distance uh, at UFC 202. But White says he will not be upset if the trilogy doesn't happen. And I quote one last time, no it's not like, oh God, I never got the chance to make number three. The first two were awesome. The first round with Connor and Nate in the first fight was insane. Connor was landing those crazy bombs. Then Diaz comes out in the second round. It was madness. And then the second fight was awesome too. If it happens, it happens. But we got enough out of the first two. We made it. And here we are. And it's a good fight. It's a fight that people want to see. It's a fight that people will be interested in. So we're going to do it. Sure, people are interested in this fight because it is a mismatch. People are going to be looking at this like watching a train wreck. That's why they're interested in this. Not to mention the fact that you kind of did hold Nate hostage when he went on Ariel's show and called it that. It's kind of true because he asked many, many times for fights. And every time he was offered one, it was with a big ass contract extension tacked onto it. So, of course, he's not going to want to take those fights because he's trying to get the hell out of Dodge so that he can possibly set up a big fight with Jake Paul. Dana coming in here and acting like, you just don't book Nate Diaz. You know, Dustin Poirier doesn't have a fight. Well, I, I should add something extra here because Dan Hardy was on the MMA Hour on Monday, I believe it was, and he said, I hope tongue-in-cheek, that, uh, that they, we should start thinking about pressing charges and that uh, because Diaz has spoken out against the organization, they're going to get executed on live TV. And it makes me feel uncomfortable to think that's the way it's going to go down. Now, Hardy's the only, you know, Hardy is not the only person who has said that this is a mismatch among fighters. But, and so that was kind of a response from, from the, the quotes from Dana. But, you know, Hardy, given the way his UFC tenure ended, 
from his commentary gig and any other stuff he was doing. Um, arguments he makes against the UFC are not necessarily in the, in the most level-headed way, I think, but he's not totally wrong because we have some precedent for how the UFC has treated certain fighters who speak out against the promotion in one way or the other, whether it's uh, the treatment of themselves or fighter pay, what have you. So you think about, I'll give you the, the best example, Roger Huerta. Roger Huerta mm-hmm. was on the cover of Sports Illustrated with his fight with Leonard Garcia. And then he, he said some things that were critical of the UFC. And then last fight of Roger Huerta's contract, who does he get? Gray Maynard. And Gray Maynard just about ripped his arm off. He mm-hmm. did everything except finish him. But Gray Maynard had told the story uh, fairly recently, I think a couple of years ago, that, that Joe Silva told him he, he wanted to – he wanted gray manner to go out there and, and break roger huerta's arm sort of like a punishment f you on the way out for roger huerta so now let's go a slightly more recent example aljamain sterling who's obviously still with the ufc and is now the reigning bantamweight champion we've interviewed him before he's been very vocal about fighter pay and the last fight of his ufc contract before he tested free agency they didn't book him in tough they gave him johnny eduardo who i think was top 15 at the time mm-hmm. but they buried him deep 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 down on the prelims of a of a fight pass card headlined by Paige Van Zandt and Rosnami Yunus and there were much better fights that were higher up the card so it is not inconceivable to think that the UFC would have some level of vindictiveness to try and, and, and book that fight to say thanks for the memories Nate now go get bludgeoned on your way out mm. uh, also of note apparently Diaz's team at least if you go by what Kevin Ioli uh, reported Diaz's team sought this fight they sought the Chimaya fight which uh yeah, I guess more power to him to, to, to willingly want to take this on. But, you know, the, the general thing of, of it's not easy to book Diaz. Well, maybe that's true, but he also could have just released him because he's asked mm-hmm. for that a million times over. And if you just release him and you can, especially since he's coming off a loss, then all this drama is, is, is done and dusted and he can do whatever he wants. But the UFC also knows Nate Diaz has that value to them that even if you got to squeeze squeeze the, the, the remaining juices out of the orange, they know that him against Shemaev is extra money coming in. That's why it's a pay-per-view main event. So as lopsided as the fight looks, they know that they don't want to just release Nate Diaz without just getting one more one more money-making fight out of that, in which case, absent a McGregor fight, Chemayev is probably the biggest option for him. I like how he mentions in there, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. We got everything we needed out of the first two. That could also be grounds to, to let him go. If you're okay with not making the biggest fight that you could possibly make in any division, then why are you not okay to just let him go? Nate Diaz is not Jay Leno. I don't expect that he'd have the kind of contract where like, if you release him, if he's fired, if he's cut, they got to pay him a whole lot of guaranteed money on the way out. I do not believe that that is the case. So I don't understand what other option there is. What other, I mean, if he's really that done and dusted, if he really doesn't have any value, why in fact, why indeed is he main eventing a, a card such as this one? You know, that that's the thing. It's the juice. It's the fact that this man has that reputation. As we've said this before, they still have that name and they're always going to have that. I mean, this dude could be 55 years old. You're still going to be in there like, yeah, but he might slap him, though. Like you're, you're always going to have someone in the audience who's going to be like, yeah, man, uh, you know, this this dude, that's that's just his M.O. That's just the way he rocks. And if no one really 
in the sport, I can't think of anybody else that has that same cachet that these two have. There's plenty of tough guys with reputations, but to have that merge into this legacy that they can still capitalize on and that they fully intend to do, fully intend to do so as they're doing now. I mean, that's it, it's it shows that he's still got plenty of value left as an asset for the company, but it also shows how grotesque this whole thing is. Dan Hardy was right. You know, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to call it an execution. I do think that his choice of words was perhaps, uh, you know, somewhat hyperbolic, but I understand why he chose to go that route with his phrasing. And it's the fact that you're killing this man's career. You know, you're going to go out there and you're going to see this hot young dude who's coming up there. He's beating the brakes off of everybody. He hasn't really looked very vulnerable. He's a he's a powerhouse wrestler with power in his hands. That is, you know that that is the antidote for the Diaz brothers. You know that this is exactly the kind of matchup that these dudes struggle with constantly. And yet, this is what they want to have. This is the scenario that they want to put him in. And a checkmate scenario where he cannot win. If they were perhaps a little smarter about this, they could, I don't know, maybe make it seem, you know, play it up for a promotional thing. But the best move really morally and ethically, maybe don't make this fight. You know, Steffi, you suggested that the that, uh, Poirier is, is out there without an opponent. Now, look, maybe, maybe Dustin would uh, take it as a money fight, but otherwise, divisionally, it doesn't really do much for him. And maybe they'd have to make that at 170 to um, put him even further outside of the orbit of the championship picture at lightweight with a win. However... That doesn't mean that it's a bad fight. It's not at least it would be uh, something where you would expect. Yeah, these two guys aren't going to be out here trying to wrestle and brutalize each other on the ground too much. It'll most likely be a fun stand-up battle that we can all get behind. So I just don't. What more is there truly to be said about this than than really the fact that this is all laid bare for the world to see? If you do not see how this is malpractice both promotionally and from a moral standpoint, how you are in a way, maybe, you know, if you want to talk about endangering the health of a fighter, well, they're fighters. I mean, they know what the risks are when they go in there. And if Nate didn't want this fight, I assume he could have probably done as he did before and turn this one down. On the other hand, who knows what's happening behind the scenes? Maybe this was the only condition under which they'd say, fine, you know, we're not going to uh, staple a giant contract with the back end of, uh, you know, another seven fights or whatever to keep you locked in if you take this one. Maybe he didn't really have much of a choice, but he's already in the mess. We're already here. We're waiting for this to happen. And really, this whole idea where Dana says, you know, you don't know what it's like to deal with these guys. Yeah, I bet they make a lot of uh, demands. I bet they have a lot of conditions that they place in, in terms of what they want and, and putting their foot down and saying, no, we, I, I'm not going to play by those particular rules. I want this and that. But guess what? Not only is that why fans love them, but that's how they've been able to persevere and stay in the game as long as they have. Because the reality is Nate has been underpaid and mistreated for way too long. And he knows. He knows right then and there. Like, you know, he's, he saw what happened with the McGregor fight. He demanded it. That's fate would have it. Dos Anjos got injured, and he got it. And he was able to make a good chunk of change. But you really think that he would have continued had that not happened, had that not had turn of events not taken place? You really think that with the fights that he had and the money that he'd made, the purses that he had accumulated over time, that he would have been fairly compensated or at least closer to what would be considered fair? Nah, man. He's trying to get his paper, and good for him. And, you know, for you to sit, for any promoter to sit there and be like, well, they're difficult to deal with. Yes. 
because you have a history of underpaying these people, because you have draconian clauses in your contracts, because you want to have this situation where you have utmost control over every aspect of these people while still maintaining them as independent contractors. And this guy simply is saying, no, you're not going to do that to me. This is the same exact MO that he had with Tito, the same exact thing that Dana did with people that have shown that, you know, look, I'm not a pushover and uh, you're not going to do this to me. Holly Holmes' manager, Lenny Fresquez, how many times have we mentioned him? How many times have we discussed how many uh, uh, concessions her and her camp have been able to pull from the UFC that they wouldn't otherwise do in other situations? It's precisely that. And that's why he's complaining. He doesn't like it because he can't roll this guy. And and that's just it. But he won't admit it. That's Dana speak. Just like when he says he doesn't want to fight. Yeah. What else aren't you telling us? Why doesn't he want to fight? What are you putting on your end that is leading to this for this to happen? And so now Nate's got to basically deal with the consequences of what's ahead. I mean, either unless Chimaev gets injured or something like that. I mean, you know, look. They're sweetening the pot by probably giving him pay-per-view points. He's headlining an event. He's definitely going to be making some money on the way out. And the UFC gets to finally make a little bit more money to squeeze a little more out of him on the way out. I guess. I mean, that's probably the nicest thing you can say about the situation is that at least he's going to be making more than if he was buried on the undercard of the prelims or whatever of UFC lower Unkin 32. Yeah, UFC might see this as a best of both worlds. You know, Diaz, they're rid of them. They're, they're rid of Nate Diaz after this fight, assuming he loses. And it probably puts Hamzad over as, as a big name. You know, the Burns fight was like step one because that was a great fight. Diaz is a massive step down in competition, but a massive increase in terms of notoriety. Yeah, that, that sounds just about right. And, well, we will move on to someone else who has a bit of a legacy, and that's going to be MMA pioneer Misha Tate, who had a rather uh, unfortunate turn of events as well in her last uh, fight as she was defeated by Lauren Murphy in what was a surprisingly very uh, spirited performance by Murphy. She looked very crisp, and Misha perhaps didn't look like her old self in there. So in a recent interview, she discussed the uh, trials of being in that fight and basically what's going on in the grand picture, the grand scheme of things uh, in terms of where she is in her career and where her headspace is. And she had this to say, I definitely need to take some time to figure it out. It was a really long camp. It got drawn out two times. I don't know if I'm going to stay at 125 or just go back to 135 where I can enjoy the diet for that long made me want to blow my brains out. It was terrible. I think I might stay at 135. I don't know. We'll see. I need a little time to regroup and see where I go from it. Now, I do want to remind you folks, Misha Tate's only really lost uh, or missed weight one time in her career, and she's been fighting since 2007. So at 35 years of age, you know, it's uh, this sort of thing kind of wears on you, especially after coming back from a long hiatus, getting back into the swing of things and dropping down to flyweight where she had not really been a fixture in the past. Maybe, just maybe, she might benefit from this and uh, seeing a uh, specialist that would be able to assist her with her weight cuts. But is this really it, though? I mean, is really is fixing her diet and trying to stay closer to fight weight year round? Is that really going to be the recipe for her to be able to succeed and do better? Now, personally, I think that she dropped to 125 because she saw, as many of us did in the Tyler Santos fight, that Shevchenko has some weaknesses, okay, that maybe other people haven't been able to capitalize on. And Misha's wrestling as her forte might have been something that could have aided her in capturing another title. But now, man, after that showing against Murphy, and look, Murphy has evolved and become a very fine fighter in her own right. 
but Misha didn't look great. And if it really was a matter of diet and rest and training and all that, then, you know, okay, sure. I'm sure that could be addressed, but does that really change who she is as a fighter? Does that really stop her from being tentative in certain exchanges and kind of not being fully committed to some of the takedowns or not setting them up properly? I don't know, guys. Do you really think that this is the proper thing for her to do to move back to 135? Or should she seek help at 125? Or option number three, should she call it quits? You know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say she should call it quits. Uh, you you um, mentioned that she's 35. She's going to be 36 at the end of the month, uh, at the end of August, I believe. It's like something around the 24th or something like that. But in any event, uh, she is close to 36 she waited way too long, and and that layoff, even though she's had a couple of fights back, that layoff was insane. Five years, right? That's a long time to be away from the game and then just come back. And all the girls that are in the division now, in, in um, flyweight and at bantamweight, have evolved way past Misha. Misha's striking has never been that great. It's always been her wrestling that's been her PowerPoint. But she even gets out-wrestled now. I mean, Lauren went in there, and Lauren is older than Misha, and Lauren overpowered her like crazy. And Misha Mm. was actually supposed to be the bigger girl. So I look at Misha, I look at the fact that she made this desperate weight cut because she is desperate to stay not just in the title discussion. I think she's desperate to stay relevant because she needs money. She's got two children. She wasn't making those huge big bucks. It's not conducive to retirement, this business. You know what I'm saying? It's not because you have to sink so much money into everything you do you're getting chump change really from the UFC. When you think about 83% going to them, it really is chump change what these guys and gals are getting. So in my opinion, Misha should pack it in. Definitely. I wouldn't even suggest that she go to Bellator or PFL or anything like that. I think that Misha should pack it in and go take care of her family and maybe find another executive job with another organization or see if the UFC has something for her there. They found something for Claudia Gedalia. Maybe they'll find something for her. Who knows? Maybe she can do another season of uh, Celebrity Big Brother. Mm-hmm. I mean, she already won that competition, right? So yeah. uh, that that was uh, whatever prize do they hand out? To a quarter million, five hundred thousand. That might like be more that. than some of her or her, her, most of her UFC fights. Right. <laughs> that's about as much. That's two Nelk boys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's good. That's really that, that, those are units of payment now. That's a good one. Two Nelk mm. boys. <laughs> Two Nelk boys. What the hell is a Nelk boy anyway? Uh, never mind. I'm sorry. Yeah, let, let, let's not rile up the crowd. Um, so with, with Misha Tate, I would give her one more fight, but it'd have to be a significant step down in competition and also ditch the flyweight thing. See, Lauren Murphy was also a bantamweight who moved to flyweight, but she made her move five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Tate to do this not too long after coming out of retirement was madness, and we saw some of the photos of her weight cut leading up to it, and it didn't look good at all. So it, it might have been a case of uh, just desperation, knowing that after losing to Ketlin Vieira, a Nunes fight at the time wasn't going to be in the cards, so she went down to 125 and figured, all right, let's see how I can go against Shevchenko, somebody I've never faced before. Well, luckily, Shevchenko won't be an option 
option for her because Murphy just dominated her. And see, when Tate retired the first time, it wasn't like she was on some massive decline. She had won the title against Holly Holm in, in dramatic fashion. Yeah, she got schooled by Nunes. She didn't look good against Raquel Pennington at all, but I didn't see somebody who was just a shot fighter. But to stay retired for as long as she did, mm. um, I mean, it's going to be really hard to just come back in and look great. Not everybody is GSP. So you look at her three fight tents coming back. Marianne Renault, who is retired, or at least I'm pretty sure she is, Kathleen VR, Lauren Murphy. I think we got to really put that Renault fight under a microscope because Renault has been in the sport a long time. She's 45 now, and she's been on a four-fight losing streak. So now that she's fought tougher fighters, fighters in their prime in VR and Murphy, yes, Murphy's, I would consider her to be in, in the best form of her career at 38 years old. She's, what, won six out of her last seven? It's not gone well for Misha. She's not looked good at all. So... I don't want to see her retire again just off of losing to top 10 fighters. But if this next fight for her is a step down a competition and she looks bad, then I would say call it a career and do something else. She's got her serious radio show, doesn't she? Yes. Yeah, she's had she it for a while, does. too. Yeah, she, she has options outside of fighting. Well, outside of literal fighting. She could stay in the fight business. But uh, as far as actual competition, I don't see what more she has to give at the highest levels of the sport. Yeah, and her podcast, while it's um, she probably has a dedicated audience, it's I would imagine it's not in- lucrative enough to support a family. Yeah, most likely not. No doubt that she came back really for for the money that comes with it, because we know that her being a women's MMA pioneer. It's not like even with the rivalry with Rousey, she was just raking in the dough for her, her whole career. She didn't get to benefit from the bump of, of the UFC having a women's division because she had already been fighting as a pro for like six, seven years, wasn't she? I mean, I, I'm checking it. She had debuted in 2007. She made her UFC debut in 2013. So Strikeforce might have been the hub for women's MMA at the time, at least in the U.S., but it wasn't like her purses were anything phenomenal. Let's move on from bantamweight for Misha Tate, or at least a return to Bantamweight for Misha Tate, to Bantamweight for Cub Swanson. Mm. Yes, a, a very, very curious decision for uh, Killer Cub Swanson because he's coming off a win. He dominated Darren Elkins. Elkins is notoriously durable, and Cub just absolutely destroyed him. But the 38-year-old announced on Instagram earlier in the week he is going to compete at 135. To my knowledge, he has never fought at 135 before. Um, and if he has, it must have been eons ago. So he wrote, after 15 years in the featherweight division, I've decided to take my talents to 135. Why? I simply needed a new challenge in my life. October 15th, I'll be facing Jonathan Martinez in my bantamweight debut. So Martinez, he's quietly won three in a row against Vince Morales, Alejandro Perez, and Ziad Love. Lazishvili. Now, the Perez fight was at featherweight, as was his win over Tomas Almeida, but Martinez has been a decent fighter in a, a very deep division at, at 135. Uh, Swanson, he's won three out of his last four. I mean, he, he, his only loss was to Giga Chikadze, who's well-established now as a top-ten fighter in his weight class. So, for, for Cub Swanson to decide now, as somebody who's fought at lightweight for a fair bit and then at featherweight for all these years, to make a move down to 135, he's already not exactly a, a, a super fast guy i don't know how this is going to work like he, maybe he wins this fight but there's just next to no chance he's going to be able to sustain that at 135 no way no how uh, how old is cup 38 yes oh no 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 Kevin. 
And Kevin, Kevin, honey. Yeah, I mean, this late in the game. Ooh, and he's he's a lot bigger than Jose Aldo. Jose Aldo's five seven. What is Cup? Five nine, five ten. I think he's listed. No, he's listed at five seven, but he. Yeah. Can, I think his walk around weight might be bigger Much than bigger. than. Bigger, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he walks around pretty thick. I just don't like these dramatic weight cuts in general, but I definitely don't like them late in life. Jose was 34, 35 when he made his. He certainly wasn't 38 going on 39. I don't want to see it. And I love Cub Swanson, but I, I, I don't like the idea. Did he say this is going to be a permanent move or is this just for the one fight? Well, he said he wants a new challenge, so oh. it doesn't imply one way or the other. But yeah. at the very least, we know his next fight's a bandwidth. Here's my guess. If this goes spectacularly wrong, Back up to featherweight he goes. Yes. If he wins, then he'll probably stay at Bantamweights until he realizes he can't make the cut. Okay. <clears throat> I just don't like it. I I wish him the best, though, because he's, it's obvious he's going to do it, but I don't like it. Okay, see, you love Cub, right? And so do I. And that's why I'm having such a hard time with this. That's why you're struggling with this, because although... Yeah, Aldo made it happen later on, but Aldo figured out that maybe those dramatic weight cuts being all late in the fight week situation, maybe that wasn't the way to go. Maybe he could stay closer to fight weight year-round. Maybe he could find different ways. And I remember being really worried. It's like, damn, he's going to 135, but those cuts to 145 were killing him. How's he going to do another extra uh, an extra 10 pounds? I'm sure Cub saw what was going on there, and he sees something at Bantamweight that maybe uh would be uh you know his style would would be a, a bit of a a good fit for that division right he'd be able to do fairly well against the opposition that's there but i you know what the problem is man cub this is the same roy nelson situation i can't remember who it was one of the commenters was bloody elbow this was years ago right mike dolce was a thing back then and somebody had said oh man mike dolce he said in that interview that he could get roy nelson to middleweight True, maybe he could. I don't doubt his abilities at getting him down there because he got a lot of excess fat. But guess what? He's still going to be Roy Nelson. He's still going to be the same guy with the telegraphed overhand right and the same problems. And Cub Swanson is still going to have the same deficiencies. And the only this thing, the only difference here in this situation is he's not going to be a faster guy. He's not going to be a smaller guy compared to some of his competitors. So now you're looking at a guy who's going to take all of his, uh, you know, whatever advantages he had. They're going to be gone, and he's just going to have the deficits. I don't like it. I really don't. But I like the guy. I want to see him do well. You know what? Fine. I don't think that Jonathan is is a step too far or, or anything of a reach for him to fight. I think he could give him a very uh, competitive uh, bout. Let's see. I guess. But I, I just for his overall health and well-being, I just don't feel comfortable with it. No, I really dislike when fighters that late into their careers at lighter weight classes, because just on percentages, it's going to be a harder weight cut, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the percentage of your body weight. So with Cub, I love watching him fight. It looked like he was pretty much on his way down in terms of his career when he had lost four straight, but he's found a little bit of, re of a revival. Why would you want to go to 135? Like there's no title run to be had there. And Jonathan Martinez is a, a middling band away, but he's he's respectable. Like once you get to the to the upper end, 
I think um, what's his name? Ricky Simone is is on the lower end of the top fifteen. Jack Shore uh, would be a tough matchup for Cubs. Like there there are a lot of unranked fighters who would probably be Cubs once at, at bantamweight. So I, I love Killer Cub. I am not down with this idea whatsoever. And yeah, I remember the Roy Nelson the two hundred five stuff. Roy, if he had t- taken his diet seriously and got to two hundred five, would have been absolutely dog walked by most of that division. Pretty much. Pretty much. It would not have been a fun uh, time for anybody involved, especially not us as viewers and definitely not for Roy and his head. But speaking of big boys, we're going to transition to the winner of this last week's main event, Curtis Blades, who, despite the fact that his fight against Tom Aspinall ended in a somewhat anticlimactic manner due to the injury, He does not believe that he should be losing any traction whatsoever and that he is, in fact, right in line for the heavyweight title. In an interview with Ariel Helwani, he was discussing this whole situation, and he said the following. I'm not risking my ranking. I won the fight. Heading into this fight, I envisioned the winner, which is me, would be fighting the winner of Tuivasa and Gunn. So I'm not going to pass up an opportunity to fight those guys when it's right there to wait for Tom Aspinall to heal and run it back. Now, as you may have heard from the uh, tone here and what was said, the implication is anything as far as a rematch with Aspinall. And he thinks, you know what? I'm past it. I won. And that's that. Dems the breaks. He wouldn't want to lose his his, his spot in line to have a rematch against someone that had a fight that ended in the way that it did. Maybe they can meet up down the road. And you know what? I don't know that I can really blame him for that. I mean, opportunities such as this are pretty tough to come by. Heavyweight is getting a little more congested at the top. And the division, at least in terms of competition is a little closer, a little tighter than it's been in recent years. He went on to say this, I'm not going to fight someone again ranked below me. I did it for Aspinall because I knew a win over him would be legitimate and he's ranked six, but could easily be top five. So that was different. But I'm not going to fight someone ranked below me. I want the winner of Tai Tuivasa and Cyril Gan. I've earned it. I deserve it. I've been a top five since 2018, ever since I beat Alistair. I deserve a title eliminator fight. Now, yeah, you might say Alistair in 2018 was washed and maybe that fight shouldn't be uh, uh, something that counts in that. But can you really argue against it? I mean, look, we've brought this up every time that he's fought lately, right? The only two people he's lost to, Ngannou and Derek Lewis, the two hardest hitters in the game. Everybody else, he's been going out there and if he's not decimating them, he's hanging in there and just you know, slow cooking them, making things good, you know, just, just looking – like a guy who is an absolute problem logistically to solve. Is this a concern? Should he, in fact, uh, just try to stay busy and take any, you know, at least one more fight with someone who might not be ranked above him? Or should he sit this out and wait for the winner in a title eliminator scenario? Man, I feel like Curtis will be sitting at the top for a while. I do. So he, if I'm him, I would go ahead and, and take take another fight. I mean, Francis isn't coming back for a while. I I don't like to see fighters sit on a shelf and not make any money, especially in the UFC where there's not a whole lot of money going around for them anyways. So in my opinion, if I'm him, as dominant as he is, yeah, I'm I'm taking another fight. He's in a difficult spot because he's 0-2 against Nganu. Like if Nganu wasn't the champion or you'd be out for such a long period of time that the door would open for a vacant title or an interim title, um, maybe Blades would would very much be in the mix for a title fight next, even with the Aspinall fight ending as unfortunately as he did. But in the meantime, even if he takes a title eliminator, 
against the Gon Tuivasa winner, which I think I'm fine with that. Like the winner of Gon Tuivasa should fight Blades next, and then we see what happens from there. But if, if Blades wins that fight and Ngannou is still the champion, then what do you do? I mean, if, you you hope that Stipe and, and John Jones, that's going to be coming up soon. But for, for Curtis Blades, for as long as Ngannou is the champion, the appetite for a trilogy between him and, and Ngannou is just not there. And in general, Blades is, is a really thoughtful fighter. He's a damn good fighter and very underrated, even, even with the high ranking he has. I think the fans don't necessarily rate him that highly, and certainly Dana doesn't. But, um, you know, for, for, for Curtis Blades, he's just in a, a, a rotten situation as a result of the the two Nganu fights. So the way I see the heavyweight division potentially playing out, Miocic Jones, whenever, probably not until at least November, and then Blades against the Gantu Ivasa winner. And I got to admit, if it comes down to which fight is more favorable for him, it's probably the uh, the Tuivasa fight because of the ability for Blades to out-wrestle Tuivasa. But even against Gan, if Gan couldn't deal with Nganu's wrestling, I mean, Blades could absolutely take him down and, and smother him too it's just that blaze doesn't have the same fear uh fearful uh punching power in the way that Nganu does but we'll see how it goes i hope that curtis blaze does fight for a title one of these days i think he's worked his ass off this fight was unfortunate for him even with the win i think that he is going to fight for a title one of these days just not with Nganu as the champion Maybe, maybe. I mean, it is it is still tough. We got to see how the rest of this gets sorted out, where John Jones fits in there. But maybe sitting tight might benefit him at this point because, I mean, what are they going to do? Who can they have pass over him in this particular situation? I don't know. Maybe, maybe this might be a, situ- a spot where he just might not suffer too much if he decides to sit out at least for a bit. Well, there are only two. Uh, he doesn't want to find anyone ranked lower than him. Okay, fair enough. So Lewis and Pavlovich will pick that fight soon. But, you know, if Pavlovich wins, then Pavlovich suddenly becomes right in the mix in in title contention. And maybe the UFC would say, hey, you want to do Pavlovich against Blades next? And then it's up to Curtis to figure out if he wants to accept it or not. There are really only two heavyweights in the top 15 at the lower end who have got obvious upside to to crack the top five. That would be Pavlovich and Alexander Romanov. So I don't remember if Romanov has a fight booked anytime soon. Um, he might, but I can't remember. So those would be the other options for Blades if, if he absolutely had to fight somebody ranked lower than him. But in the meantime, maybe uh, if Stipe Jones doesn't materialize, maybe John Jones will end up fighting Curtis Blades since he's too busy sniping at him on Twitter. I mean, Blades <laughs> just makes an honest assessment about why Stipe would beat John Jones. And Jones just takes any personal slight, any slight against him, and he's just got to go off. I mean, he is as active as it can get on, on Twitter compared to, you know, actually fighting. That's not even a slight. It's a critique. There's a and difference. he praised him plenty, too. He praised yeah. Jones in, the, in his analysis. Didn't There's matter. There's a big difference in a critique <laughs> and outright just taking him down, and that's not what he did. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, listen, man, it's petty people, small egos, you know what I mean? It's like, you, you, there's just some people that they can't take criticism. Mm-hmm. And and John is certainly one of them, but I don't even remember if he's deleted that one. He deletes so many tweets. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get to our picks for UFC 277, but let's first recap what happened last week. I kind of lost track of, of how we picked, so Steffi won the week. When I when I tallied the scores last night, Steffi went 4-2, and two, Victor and I went 3-3. Three and three. Victor did better than I thought, and and the reason is he did pick Volkan Uzdemir over Paul Craig in what is a guaranteed entry into the MMA Depressed Us archives for later mm-hmm. this year. 
Um, so we got Jason Jackson over Douglas Lima, correct? Absolutely horrendous fight. Um, Victor, you picked Gustafson over Krilov. Now, I said Misha Tate shouldn't retire uh, after the Murphy fight. Gustafson should 110% retire. Oh, and gosh. Daniel Cormier tweeting that out, I think was th- that was thoroughly agreeable. He looked way washed. So Krilov got the win there. Victor picked uh, Jordan Le- Leavitt against Patty Pemblett. Didn't go well. Pemblett got the W. Uh, Chris Curtis disappointed us. Beat, lost to Jack Hermanson, and then uh, I guess they, they've they've had their uh, little spat all taken care of, and now they're their buds again. And then we know what happened with Aspinall Blades. I picked Aspinall. I should have known better. When it comes to picking heavyweight fights, I am the ultimate jinx. So let's get to UFC 277. Juliana Pena and Amanda Nunes is the main event. Brandon Moreno, Kai Kara France, the co-main event. We're going to start with the main card opener here. Anthony Smith against Magomed Ankalaev. I want to take Anthony Smith, and I did on Care Don't Care, but I'm going to split the difference here because I feel like Ankalaev has more tools than Anthony does. Anthony's got that great grappling, but Ankalaev has great wrestling. And I think Ankalaev has more explosive power, knockout power. I just, yeah, I'm going to take Ankalaev here. All right. I... If I were gambling on this fight, right, hypothetically, I would absolutely go with Ankalaev. But Smith, man, I can't count him out. I just can't. And against my better judgment for the sake of this podcast and this little running gag we got going, I'm going to go with Smith because you know what? He's just pulled it out of a hat so many times. We talk about Paul Craig, but Jesus, look what this guy does. I don't know, man. I'm just I'm just going to go with it. Let's just let it ride. Anthony Smith. I'm going on Kalaya, but I give Smith a better chance than the odds makers are giving him. Akalaya is like four or five to one. And that is pretty wide given how close they are on the rankings and, and how many good wins Anthony Smith has. I mean, Akalaya is at uh, minus 500 on DraftKings to Smith's uh, plus 400 underdog uh, tag. So that means Anthony Smith is the second largest underdog on the entire card. And that is crazy to think about. Now, where I have hesitation picking Smith is the fact that he's not going to be the faster fighter. And if Ankalaev can just work him from top position, then it's going to be hard for Smith to, to really mount any consistent offense. Like if Smith gets top position, we know that he can grapple. He's just not the same like serious submission threats that, that uh, off of his back than he would be at the top. I mean, as aggressive as he might be, I think Ankalaev has learned his lesson from the Paul Craig fight. And um, maybe if Smith has a chance, it's to just fight it at faster pace at a better pace than Ankalaev and try and tire him out. But I, I feel like Ankalaev just has the advantages here on the feet, should have enough of an advantage on the ground, and he will get a decision win. I don't think he'll finish him. So Stephanie and I are going with Ankalaev. Victor's going with Smith. Next <laughs> I'm sorry. Before we go on, Anthony Smith and I share a birthday. I just remembered that. So, oh, cool. yeah. Yeah. So, you know, hey, maybe that's the other bit of solidarity we're going with. Well, happy birthday, Lionheart. Let's see if he can get a W to uh, top off his birthday week then. All right. Uh, so we move to the flyweight division. First to two men's flyweight fights on this main card. Man, in, in 2022, did the UFC, uh, the matchmakers and the bout order people must have let this one slip to have two men's flyweight fights on the main card of a pay-per-view. Alessandra Pantoja against Alex Perez. I love this fight. I love this fight, too. I have to take Pantoge, though. I mean, golly, the guy is phenomenal. And he's only lost to the very top guys. And while this guy is great, 
he's not the very top guys. And I just don't see Alessandra losing to him. So I'm going to take Pantoja. I have a I have a similar sentiment. I thought, you know, at first maybe I should go with Alex because of his output and his boxing, and he's he's pretty slick with his transitions. But I can't really count Alessandro out because he does have that veteran savvy. He does have that flypaper grappling approach. He's also a dude who's got uh, he's pretty good at setting up his combinations and getting out of the way. Over the he's he's really 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 a specialist at playing the long game. And that's what I think was going to be the, the, the biggest advantage for him here. So, um, yeah, I, I, I got to go with that. I got to go with Pantoja. Yeah, Pantoja's got a, a well-rounded game. I mean, at Flyway, you kind of have to. Yeah. But you, you think about his his knockout power, the way he dusted Wilson Hayes and Matt Schnell, and then to submit Brandon Royval the way he did. I mean, he is an excellent scrambler. He's not a strong takedown threat. But when this goes to the ground, I mean, there, there are not too many people who can outwork him there. I, I worry about his cardio just a tad. Um, but, you know, Perez can fight. I mean, he's got excellent leg kicks, just as Juice here for Amiga. He's got really good boxing. But... He, he can be stopped, and Pantoja is, is a serious finishing threat. So I, I think that if he fights Pantoja's fight, which is going to be a lot of uh, scrambling and, and battle for dominant position, he's going to get caught in something and choked out. So I'm going to go with Alessandra Pantoja by submission, but I'm biased because I'm a total Pantoja fan. Uh, so we're clean sweeping there for Pantoja over Perez. Next up, heavyweights, the big boys. Man, to, to stick a heavyweight fight in between two flyweight fights, that is impressive <laughs> trolling. So the Black Beast against Sergey Pavlovich. Can Pavlovich send Derek Lewis to another L in Texas? Oh, man. And that's the key in Texas. Derek is from Texas, albeit Houston, but Dallas is a hop, skip, and a jump away, and I am terrified for him because for some reason when he fights at home, he loses. And so I'm looking at this fight and I'm thinking to myself, please, please don't let this be another L, but I'm going to take Derek here because I think he's better and he hits harder, but who knows my god i'm probably gonna regret this this is totally gonna bite me in the ass but i'm taking Derek. i have the exact same feeling i'm i have some trepidation i think that pavlovich can hang with a lot of the dudes in the heavyweight division i think he is another uh, potential future staple of that division i just don't know that he's ready for this right now and Derek lewis for all of his misgivings for all of his flaws the guy knows what he's doing in there he's not just a boxer he's coachable he's malleable he's got very 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 smart uh grappling defense um and i don't think that pavlovich has what it takes to knock him out either i mean tied to is one thing but you know pavlovich even though he can hit hard i don't know that he hits Tuivasa hard so i'm gonna go with Derek lewis I think that Pavlovich is, is a talented enough striker that he could knock Lewis out because Lewis, um, he gets hurt a lot and he's been knocked out quite a few times. Even if it's not one shot, it can be accumulation. Uh, if Pavlovich wants to wrestle Lewis, that might be a problem because it seems like that's the worst way, unless you're Daniel Cormier, some elite level grappler in addition to being an elite wrestler, that doesn't seem to be the best way to beat Derek Lewis. Um, so can Pavlovich swing and bang with Lewis? Possibly, but I, I, I'm not to totally ready to, to pick him uh, on that front. I think that Lewis has actually gotten a little bit better 
even though he's coming off this loss to Tuivasa, I mean, he didn't look bad in that fight. He was, he was yeah. going for takedowns against Dalkas. He looked fantastic. I mean, just absolutely wrecked him with not just punches, but knees too. He, he's trying to round his game out a little more, which maybe takes some of the fun and charm out of Derek Lewis as a fighter. But still, it makes for a more sustainable type of success at heavyweight. So I think that Lewis, um, rather Pavlovich, is good and has a lot of upside, even though he has only just gotten back into fighting. But I don't think he's quite ready for the Black Beast and, you know, the upper echelon of heavyweight. So I'm going to pick Lewis by knockout, but it's not a confident pick because it is heavyweight after all. So we're all going with Lewis over Pavlovich. Next up, co-main event, Brandon Moreno, Kai Kara France for the interim flyweight title. And the first fight between them, Moreno won by decision. So will history repeat itself? I'm going to go out on a limb and say yes. I love both these fighters, and it's a very difficult pick. They're both so scrappy, and they, they're they also really good in scrambles. I like that. They, they both are good strikers, obviously. But I just think that Marino is probably just a hair, just a hair better than Kaikara Franz. I could be wrong. They, they, they could be on par with each other right now, but I feel like Brandon Marino is probably just slightly better. And maybe... Yeah, I won't say that he's hungry or because Kaikara France is probably damn hungry for his shot. But uh, I, I definitely think that there is an, an experience edge and definitely a little bit of a power edge, too. Hmm. I've gone back and forth on this one because of Moreno's submission savvy and his takedowns. Uh... But Kai, you know, he's he's just he's too slick. You know, it's the same thing with Pavlovich in the sense that it's like this guy's got some tools, man. He can make it happen. This dude is is definitely uh, a top contender for a reason, and he's fighting a former champ now. Um, you know, as as a much more seasoned uh, fighter than when they first faced off. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to pick Kai Carfronts. I think that uh, he's probably going to be able to solve the uh, uh, some of the problems that Moreno presents in the stand-up, especially when it comes to a lateral movement and pressing him against the cage. More so than that, he's going to have to really work on uh, defending against the trip takedowns, but he's got a hell of a staff and a great crew, and those guys at City Kickboxing, man, it's hard to pick against them, so that's just another reason to go with it. I'm going to go with Kai. You know, their first fight was pretty much a kickboxing match because nobody attempted to take down. It was just going strike for strike, and Moreno outstruck Cara France. I don't think that would be advisable for Moreno in the rematch, actually, because Cara France has gotten better. Um, the, the Garbrandt fights, I don't really put a lot of stock in because Garbrandt already has a bad chin and decided to make it worse by going down to flyweight and immediately removing a lot of his speed edge, too. Cara France is, is a really good striker. He's got good counter-punching. I mean, he hits hard with that right hand. Look what happened to Rogerio Bontarin. Moreno is such a, a talented fighter. And even though Cara France has done extremely well to avoid the bad spots against Askarov and Bontarin, he's been controlled, but he hasn't been put in any serious danger. I feel like Moreno is a different animal on that front. Mm-hmm. So um, I expect a more diverse fight than the last time. My concern is that if this fight is really close and it goes the distance, this is Texas, and they tend to use their their, their local judges as opposed to using judges we're familiar with from Nevada and, and other states. So we could get some wonky scores. But I feel like Moreno 
Moreno will end up having the more damaging offense. But yep. he's got to watch himself because he got cracked a few times against Figueredo, and that cost him the fight. So against Car France, he, he's really got to watch for the power that Kai presents. So I'm going to go with Moreno. I feel like he's going to be more consistent offensively, too. And um, he'll he'll do enough to win rounds. So Steph and I are going with Moreno. Victor's going with Car France. Now we get to the main event. Juliana Pena shocked the world at UFC 269. Will she, as an underdog again, shock the world twice over against Amanda Nunes? As much as I hate to say this, and it's killing me, I'm going to say yes. I think that Amanda's done. Um, not physically, but I think mentally Amanda's checking out. She's a mother now. And it seems kind of that way for both her and Nina. It seems like they might just be preparing, you know? Amanda came out and said in a recent interview that she needs to, that Dana's right. I do need to get my shit together. And that's very telling to me that maybe her heart isn't as in this as it once was. And she's not getting any younger. And I use that phrase a lot because when fighters are in their mid-30s and they've been fighting for more than a decade, yeah, you're not getting any younger. This is a cruel sport and it's so physical it is taxing on your body your body's never the same once you're done with mma i've heard so many retired fighters talk about their knees and their shoulders their hips etc i'm looking at amanda and i'm thinking to myself especially the way that that juliana shocked her so bad in the second and man she got outworked on the ground she did managed to drop Juliana in the first in the first I think she dropped her twice but Juliana's never been knocked out she's been finished one time by strikes I believe and then the other finishes have been by submissions but that that one by strikes or injury or whatever was super earlier in, in her career I just think that Juliana's really hungry and she's so tough and durable and I just, uh, I don't know. I'm I'm not confident in Amanda anymore. Mm, yeah, I, I have to agree. I think that Juliana was able to use, as wonky as her striking is, she was able to use her movement and her hustle and her timing to find a home for that jab and really be sure that whenever Amanda was coming in, she'd make her pay for it. I think her striking team kind of figured out the Amanda Nunes tendencies. You know, and that's one of the worst things that can happen as a fighter is you get figured out. Now, Amanda left ATT, formed her own team, is doing her own thing, and that's great. But I don't know, man. I think sometimes it's like it's like Dennis Hallman and Matt Hughes, you know, somebody got your number. That's a wrap. You know what I mean? Like, that's just this person is going to beat you more often than not. And I think that Juliana is, for someone who's been underestimated for as long as she has, uh, has managed to put a lot of her tools together, use the explosiveness, even though she's a bit of an awkward athlete. She's not the most nimble uh, fighter, but she does have those bursts of explosiveness and she does manage to use those weird angles where there's strikes Her hands are coming from different places. I'm sure that throws people off, you know, and I'm sure that's part of the, part of the thing here with threw off uh, Amanda. So that, and for other reasons, I, I think this is it, man. I think this is probably going to be where she just slams the door shut on this whole deal. And she wins again. If I may interject one thing, you made a super good point there about her camp. Because it's different going off and starting your own camp than having that world-class team of trainers, all the trainers in the world that she could possibly need. 
nutritionist, the whole nine. She had all of that at her disposal and now she does not. So that's a very, very good point to make. I just, I've watched the fight again and I cannot fathom how Pena can just flail strikes at Nunes and that game plan worked. I mean, Pena full marks her for winning. The fact that Nunes could outstrike and knock out Chris Cyborg the way she did and, and tear apart Holly Holm and stop her with a head kick and then lose because she didn't know how to faint or, or, or throw with, with Pena, who's not exactly a, a fantastic striker, a good form striker. It's, it's so baffling to me. So if she looks as bad as she did in this rematch as she did in the first fight, she should retire. And, and I think that's... Be, it'd be good for the USC because then they can rid themselves of 145 too. I, I'm, I'm going to go with Nunes. I just, you know, Pena is obviously a, a very, very good fighter. She is the champion. It wasn't some some fluke injury or fluke outcome, I think, necessarily. But Nunes, she had, she said she had a difficult camp. She was coming off of COVID too because that fight got pushed back. So I don't know how much that affected her cardio. I also don't know how much the weight cut to 135 affected her because she hadn't done that for a while because her last few fights before that were at featherweight. So it's possible that Nunes can't make 135 easily these days. And you compound, you know, you add that to the COVID issues, and maybe it was just a perfect storm for a lackluster performance. But Nunes at her best, or even at 80%, should still be able to beat Pena. Like, she is the much better striker. Pena can wrestle, but Nunes, she she is such a danger on top. And she's slick with her back takes and rear naked chokes. And Pena's been stopped before by Shevchenko on the ground. But I, I got to go with Nunes. And if it doesn't work out, then it's probably the end of Amanda Nunes. And she can, uh, you know, move on to, to something else in her career because she, she, she's already accomplished so much. She is the greatest women's mixed martial artist of all time, at least in my opinion. Um, but it would be hard for me to think that she's going to have a repeat of what happened just a few months ago. So I'm picking Nunes by TKO round three. Her reign of dominance in terms of just beating everybody at 135 or 145 is clearly waning, but I think she's got one more good outing in her. So Steffi and Victor picking Pena. I'm going with Nunes. So uh, we got three pick differences here. Victor going with Smith over Ankalaev and Cara France over Moreno. I'm the only one going with Nunes over Pena. And we're unanimous on Pantoja over Perez, Lewis over Pavlovich. I forgot to update the standings, by the way. I'm in first, 83, 48, and three. I'm only two ahead of Steffi, and she is six ahead of Victor. So in the meantime, you can read the rest of our picks over at Bloody Elbow. Yes, I'm creeping up on you, Mookie. I'm going to win again this year. You watch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's going to wrap the show. Do me a favor. Follow Victor on Twitter, at Vic M. Rodriguez. Follow him on Instagram too, Victor Sinister Rodriguez, because he posts lots of great food and travel photos, just great stuff over there. So check him out. Follow Mookie on Twitter, at Mookie Alexander, and he is the managing editor of SB Nation's Field Goals website. So if you're a Seattle Seahawks fan, get over there, check him out. Football season's getting ready to kick off. He's got all the goods. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Crooklyn MMA, the show at Level Change Pod. We're also available on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash Level Change Podcast. You can find all of our work over on bloodyelbow.com. I think Victor's got a new WTF what the fuck piece coming out real soon on a fun, fun little fight we got wind of today. 
And uh, if you listen to the pre-recorded outro, you'll get Mookie's dulcet tones telling you all the other places you can find this show and the other great Bloody Elbow Presents shows. So check that out. Go find yourself a platform. Subscribe. Listen. Leave a comment. Whatever. Just come back next week. Till then, stay safe. Thank you for listening to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, hop over to the Bloody Elbow Presents SoundCloud and iTunes pages, as well as subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We are also on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you will get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, The Mookie and Crookie Show, The MMA Vivisection, The Level Change Podcast, The Sixth Round Post-Fight Show, Sixth Round Retro, The MMA Depressed Us, Crooklyn's Corner, Exclusive Fighter Interviews, Show Money, and Radio-Style Play-by-Play for every UFC pay-per-view. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloody elbow blog, and as always on bloodyelbow.com.